Well, depending upon where you know your your upbringing, depending upon um, what you have seen modeled in your life, most people kind of deal with emotions in a different sort of way. Uh, there's some people that I have experienced in my past where uh, they are quite emotional and whenever they experience difficulty and hardship in life, they tend to be very vocal about it and to make a big scene about it. And there's other people who tend to kind of go through life with their head down and when they experience difficulty and have emotion and anxiety and things to process, it's all internal and they don't ever say anything. And you kind of wonder, is there like, you know, a quiet storm raging inside that, you you know, it's just built up in, in, inside and keeping it internal within someone. And, you know, there's also kind of the crowd that's kind of the passive-aggressive crowd where it's like, it, it's really a big deal, but I'm not going to say anything about it. And if I do, it's going to come across in like this offhanded, like, I don't really care, but I really care. You better listen to what I'm saying or else there's going to like be some greater wrath. And so we all kind of have different ways of processing emotion and going through life. And, and a lot of it tends to be associated with what you've seen modeled in your life. It tends to, you know, what your parents or relatives, what you've seen, how you've seen uh, your, your siblings, if it's been successful for them and they've demonstrated something or modeled a way that they've uh, dealt with their emotions before you and it seemed like it worked for them and, you know, you maybe start to admire that way and you adopt that way, perhaps. But one of the things that we want to look at this morning is how the Bible tells us we ought to deal with emotions. And, and it doesn't tell us that we should simply be completely quiet about our emotions, and it doesn't say that we should internalize our emotions, but rather what we'll look at this morning is that it tells us that we should pray our emotions. And we'll see that all through the book of Psalms, and, and we've seen that just last week when we looked at uh, the book of James. The last thing that James says there in, uh, not the very last thing, but in one of the closing remarks there in James 5.13, he says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone among you cheerful? Let him sing praise. Either way, whether you are in a season of suffering, whether you are in difficulty, in trial, in fear, you should pray. If you are going through a good season in life where things are great and you're cheerful, you should take it to the Lord in praise. David, or, or excuse me, James says that regardless of whatever emotion you're experiencing, the proper way to deal with it is first to take it to the Lord in prayer, to take it to the Lord with praise. And when we look at the Psalms, um, the Psalms are made up of just these great emotional prayers. It's a book of, uh, filled with, with raw, intense emotion. It's a book that's filled with, with you know, great descriptors of how how the psalmist is feeling, there's lamentation and there's, there's cheer and joy and praise and singing. And this morning we're going to look at one of the psalms, Psalm 3. And this is a portion where the psalmist, David, is kind of pouring out his heart. And this is what we want to see. We want to see David model this for us so that we ought to know how we can now apply what James has said there in uh, James 5.13, that if we're suffering, we should pray. So what does that look like? 
What does it look like to pray when you're suffering? Well, we have this example in Psalm 3 of what David has given us here into an insight in a situation in his life. And so we're going to look at this time in David's life where David is praying through his fear. He's praying through this intense emotion that he's experienced. And so he starts off by kind of explaining his fear. He, he, he says, O Lord, in verse 1 of Psalm 3, O Lord, how many are my foes, many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Now, he's expressing that he's in some turmoil, that he's in fear. And, and when we talk about fear, fear can be a good thing. There's a good type of fear or a healthy type of fear, and there are certainly unhealthy types of fear. Uh, you know, when I, when I take my son to the skate park, and Elliot is there, and he's getting a little bit of confidence as he's making his way through the skate park, and he's been a couple times now, and, and he's like, okay, I, got, I can handle this four-foot little, little roll-in, and I think I got that, uh, you know, just kind of rolling into the skate park real nice and leisurely. And he's gained a little confidence, and he can, he can ride up this eight-foot quarter pipe that's on the other side. And he, can, he gets just a little bit of, of uh, height on that, just a little bit of vert, and then rolls back down. And that gives him a little bit of confidence. And so as I'm there with him and, and experiencing the skate park with him and encouraging him and telling him, yeah, you're doing a good job, he's you know, wanting to go to the top of the eight-foot quarter pipe. He's like, I've gone on that. I want to do this. And so he stands there and kind of looks over the edge. And then all of a sudden is like, oh, I'm not sure about that. This looks different. It's a healthy fear for, you know, a five-year-old or an eight-year-old, excuse me, an eight-year-old to, to not want to stand on the edge of an eight-foot drop and, and kind of just tumble over into it if he hasn't done it before. You know, there's a specific way that you want to commit to a quarter pipe. And, you know, having a small body tumbling down an eight-foot drop is not really a great idea if you don't have the confidence and experience to do it. But yet, as he gets up there, he maybe thinks he wants to do it. He gets to the edge and kind of sees that. He's like, I don't really know about this. There's a healthy fear. He knows that there is an issue there. There's a specific problem, and he knows that something is telling him, this probably isn't a good idea right now. And so there's different kinds of fear, and there's a healthy fear in that sort of aspect. It's, he is, it's a constructive fear. It's keeping him away from danger. It's keeping him uh, away from a specific instance, a specific problem. But there's also this unhealthy type of fear a fear that most of us, and you know, without a doubt, all of us have experienced at some point in our life. And, and the Bible often calls it, in, in other sorts of you know, terminologies, often refers to it as worry or anxiety. You know, this fear, this bad fear, is not really necessarily a very specific fear. You're not specifically afraid of of 
one thing where you can say, oh, that's the problem and I'm going to learn from that. This is constructive and so I know the reason. But rather, this is an overwhelming feeling. It's, you know, it kind of feels like the world is caving in on you when, when you don't know what to do. You're outnumbered. Life is, is collapsing upon you. You know, you, everyone has kind of had that hollow experience of anxiety where you're like, I know there's trouble, I know there's turmoil, and I don't really know what to do about it. I can't put my finger on what exactly is the problem, and it just feels like kind of a moving target. Oftentimes, that fear produces in us a nervousness. It produces within us a a fear that leads to, you know, emotions that come out and manifest themselves in other ways. And it can lead to physical problems, this anxiety uh, that, that comes. It, and this fear is known as not really a, a fear that would, uh, that's not a healthy fear that would lead you to action, but that this fear is one that would paralyze you. You're like, I don't know what to do. I can't make a decision. I feel like I'm, I'm sinking in quicksand and you can't do anything about it. Healthy fear will push you into making a, a correct decision, a right decision, or making a wise decision. Whereas this unhealthy fear, this anxiety or worry, it just makes you feel paralyzed. You can't do anything. Life is overwhelming you. And this is kind of what David is facing here. David is kind of facing this sort of difficulty. And I know that each of us are not facing the same types of things that David is facing here specifically, where he's got this army chasing him, wanting to kill him. Most of us aren't facing that. But we do face people being angry at us. We do face, you know, deadlines at work or bills that need to be paid that don't look like we have the resources to meet those things. And we have unhealthy fear associated with those things. And so we're going to look at David's issue. He starts off and we kind of see his situation, what he's facing. And he's facing two things I want you guys to see here. Verse one, he says, "O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Notice his kind of tone there. He's saying like, Lord, here's what's going on. I'm outnumbered. He is facing a, a physical problem. And if you notice on the inscription in the psalm there, or the subscript, it tells us that this psalm is a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. And this psalm is set as a response, or, or not a response, it's set out of David's thoughts that we find uh, the action to in, in 2 Samuel 15 verse 13. This is kind of what it says here in what David is writing in response to. Let me give you a a little bit of a lead up too. So at this point in David's life, he is king of Israel. He has some kids and, and his son Absalom has been outside of kind of the palace gates there for four years as people would come and say, I need to speak to the king regarding this issue. Absalom has been there sabotaging David and telling him, the king has no one appointed to hear your case, but I know it's a righteous one. I know that that you deserve justice and go away. There's no one appointed. And so he does this for four years as people come and they see, well, Absalom here, he believes my case. He, he thinks that my case is just and I should receive something. And he sends, he sends me away because the king has no place. And so Absalom says, here's what I'm going to do. After four years, he finally has set up his coup successfully. 
And he goes and he tells, he goes to the palace at Hebron. And he's, uh, as he's there, he tells them to proclaim that Absalom is king at Hebron. And as he does that, a messenger in Psalm, uh, 2 Samuel 15 comes to David. In 2 Samuel 15, verse 13, it says, And a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever the Lord, my lord the king decides. So the king went out and all his household after him, and the king left ten concubines to keep the house. And the king went out and all the people after him, and they halted at the last house. So David's son is throwing this coup to try to kill him, and David sees this coming, and he flee, is fleeing the city with those who would serve him and with his servants and, and those who are loyal to him. He's, he's on his way out and he's running for his life. He knows that if Absalom and these people catch him in the city, they're going to kill him. He's running. And, and as you read the rest of 2 Samuel 15 through, you know, basically 17, 18-ish, there you see that Absalom has these different plans and he's sending out thousands and thousands of men to create this kind of net to, to hone down on David and catch him. And so David here, his first problem is that he's in fear for his life. He has physical problems. Someone wants to kill him. And not just one person. He says in Psalm 3, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. It's not just the one, it's many. And then his second problem here, he says in verse 2, many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. The second problem that David is having is these people are speaking against his character, his identity, who he is. People are saying that David has no hope of being delivered by God. David has no advocate with God. He has, God will not help David. And what, what they're saying is, back when Saul was the king, there was a point where Saul was disobedient to God. He was not obeying the commands of God, and therefore God removed the kingship from him. He, he took that away from King Saul because of his disobedience. He said he, he took away his blessing from, from Saul, and, and Saul was killed as a result. And they're saying to David, these people, God has taken his blessing away from you. you. You disobeyed and you deserve to be killed just like Saul. The Lord has abandoned you and he will not hear you. David is facing this situation where they're attacking his identity as the king. They're attacking his identity as the ruler of Israel. They're attacking his character saying that you have blown it. You've sinned that God will not hear you. And so in our lives, what this looks like is those who would oppose us, who, who would be detractors, who would speak lies to us. People who kind of, you know, we've all had kind of people in our lives at one point or another who have been discouraging and instead of coming alongside and wanting to see us built up in the faith, has, have, you know, spoken instead and said, 
you know, God isn't blessing you because you're not doing this. Or God isn't, isn't coming alongside you and, and helping you through this difficult situation. Or, or you're experiencing these hardships in life because of this. Everyone kind of wants to have their own opinion and tell you these reasons why they think you're going through something. But those things that people are saying, if they're not for the building up and pointing you back to Christ, they're people who are coming alongside David here in this in a similar way they're they're speaking lies they're opposing and 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 speaking uh you know really cursings upon him Philippians 4 8 tells us that when we speak to one another we should speak whatever is true whatever is honorable whatever is just whatever is pure whatever is lovely whatever is commendable if there's any excellence if there's anything worthy of praise think on those things so we shouldn't let the lies of the enemy come in. We shouldn't let those who would seek to destroy us with their words come in. And now after this, David puts this little word, Selah, right there. Now, a lot of people, a lot of scholars, there's a lot of debate over what this means. And it's not really super important. The predominant thought is that it's a musical term. These psalms were, so, were sung. They were, they were written and, and sung there in a, in a musical sense. And so this word here is a musical term that would perhaps indicate that you should pause in the lyrics for, you know, a little breakdown in the music. It's just all of a sudden, you go to halftime and get your like little jam on. Someone throws in the solo, and then you know you kind of pick back up. Some people think it, think it means just repeat that section again. Uh, and the point of it here is, it's you should you have to come to this word and you stop and you consider what's happening there. It, it, musically, the those who would who would read it, they would see that. But as we read it, we want to consider what is being said here. He says that we should now take a, a moment and consider what's being said here. And David does this. There's a little bit of a break between here's my problems and now I'm just going to be quiet for a second. Oftentimes, that's what we need to do. Before we just speak out and blurt out and respond quickly, we need to pause and seek the Lord in prayer. And this is what he does. As he's writing out this Psalm 3 is a whole prayer is what we're looking at. And so we know David's problems. He's dealing with fear, both bodily and with attacking his character and his identity. But fear is the overwhelming problem. He's dealing with anxiety and worry. Now, we see the response and how David now responds uh, to that fear and, and what he does. And this is the key. We're going to look at three things that he does that we ought to do. So he says... In his response, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. So the first thing that I want you to note there is that David says, I'm overwhelmed. People are trying to kill me. I'm dealing with these, this major fear and anxiety, but you. He knows he can't do it in himself now. He knows that it's not... It, it, it can't be only his problem. And now we see his response. He says, I'm scared, but... 
And we see what he does. The mood kind of of the psalm is, is beginning to change here. It goes from this despair to a place of confidence now. And David is reminding himself of the gospel. He's reminding himself of God's protection. He's reminding himself of God's sovereignty. And he responds with three things. He says that God is his shield. God is his glory. And God is the lifter of his head. Those are the three keys that we want to look at today and how we respond to fear, anxiety, worry in life, those three things. He says, I'm scared, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me. A shield about me. Now, when we, when we look at shields in popular movies, you know, if you've seen any sort of film like uh, Gladiator or Troy or any of those sorts of films, when you see kind of those sword fighting scenes, you have this, this really intense battle where these guys have this shield upon their arm. It's usually latched there with like leather straps and it's, you know, it can be anywhere from like uh, around two feet in diameter to like three feet in diameter. It's like a big circular thing. And the idea is that as you hold the shield, it was not only a defensive whip in there, but you would, you would kind of use it as a counterattack both to block the, the blow of the enemy, but also you could use it to hit him as you countered with the other side of your sword, and you would trade blows. And, and those shields, they would allow you to move mobily within battle and have protection. It, it would be there for you in, in, a, in a circular fashion so that you could in any moment kind of move it and swing it about. But as you did that, you exposed another section of your body, and the only thing you had to protect there was your sword. And so the, the techniques in the, in the use of the shield wouldn't necessarily be what we're talking about here. The shield that David is mentioning, we get a little bit of a clue into because he says, you are a shield about me, or some translations say around me. And a shield this big isn't going to be around anyone. It's going to be around your arm. You know, your head's exposed, your legs are exposed, your vital organs are exposed. That's a shield, but it's not a shield around you. The shield that, that David is talking about is a larger shield. It's roughly 40 to 48 inches in height. That's like a small door, basically. It's, it's a shield that is meant for wrapping around. And this shield was... Not too mobile. Actually, I have a picture of it. There it is. I brought a picture. What? That's the actual shield right there. And that hole in the middle is not supposed to be there. It's just, you know, it's hard to keep things like intact when they're like buried in the ground for thousands of years. So there's actually like a metal piece that goes over that. They didn't just leave their hand exposed. Like, this is the great place to hit me. <laughs> it's not the target. So that would be covered. But this shield, you, it's hard to kind of tell on that screen, but it curves. It, it, it curves around on the sides. It's about, uh, I think this one specifically is about 48 inches in height. So it was designed to go from your chin down to your ankles, roughly. That was the idea. And the, the point of this shield, it was designed specifically to be used in sieges. The idea is that you would get behind the shield so that way as things were attacking you, you could completely duck behind it. And if you were battling with other soldiers in the field, they would put one over you. Also, there would be a roof of shields 
they would call it the tortoise. It's like some, there's some other Latin word, but I'm not going to try. But it translates to the tortoise, obviously, because you're meant to bring everything in and protect like a shell. Now, this shield was used in sieges, and you would not use this in a mobile fashion. You wouldn't use this in hand-to-hand -hand combat. It was too large to, to, to move around and swing and fight. The point of sieges is to go and take a city, not to defend. So what David is saying here, when he says that you are a shield about me, he's recognizing that, Lord, I know you're a shield about me, but I also know that you take me further into danger. You expose me to danger, not, not just simply protect me from it. The point of this shield was to move forward, move closer to the enemy, not further away. It was to move further into the heat of the battle. It was built for advancing and not for retreat. If you were holding the shield and you were trying to go backwards, there wasn't a way to do that. It's huge. It's meant for moving forward. The only way to get away is to leave your shield behind and to run away and thus expose yourself. And so when David says that he's scared and fearful here and that God is his shield, he's not saying that God's not going to let bad things happen to him or he's not going to just uh, not experience difficulty in his life ever. He is recognizing that God's going to take him into danger, and he's okay with that because God is his shield that wraps around him, and he's committing to following the Lord deeper into battle, even though it means more danger, even though it feels more intense, even though there's a greater opportunity for hurt, even though it feels more difficult. He's committing to that. And the shield only works by going forward. It only works if you follow the commander, your general, into battle. If you try to disobey your orders and retreat and you leave your shield, you'll be killed. The archers on the wall will shoot you. You will be struck down. And that's often how it is in times of fear and anxiety for us. We often are experiencing these things, and the Lord is telling us, I'm your shield. I'm wrapping around you, and it feels intense, and we're going into a more difficult season, but if you try to get out of this on your own, if you try to run away, you're going to be picked off. If you trust me and go further into battle, I will protect you. I am the shield about you. If we run instead of staying behind the shield, we will be hurt worse than if we had stayed. You leave the protection of that, you're going to get maimed. The, the other thing about the shield is the 5th century writer, I'm going to try, Vegetius, <laughs> that's the closest it's going to get, he added regarding the shield that one of the other purposes of the shield is that it helped in identification. He says, lest the soldiers in the confusion of the battle should be separated from their comrades, every cohort had its shields painted in a manner peculiar to itself. The number of the cohort and the century to which he belonged was written on the shield. And so when you're behind the shield, you're saying and identifying with 
God. You're identifying with Christ. You're saying, I'm behind this. I have my name written on the front of who I belong to, where I belong. This is my protection. God is my protection. And David says, you are my shield, O Lord. It brings that identity. And now David addresses that in his next thing. He says, I'm scared, but you, O Lord, are my glory. You, O Lord, are my glory. Well, what David is saying, essentially, is that he's admitting in saying that God is his glory, is that he's saying that God wasn't his glory before. He has been caught up, wrapped up in his own identity. He was seeing his identity taken away before him. David was the king, and now he's on the run. He's lost all political power, all riches, all his servants. He doesn't have that anymore. It was, it was a glorious thing for him to have that. David maybe thought he was a good father, and now his son wants to kill him. You know, when it's like a heartbreaking thing to hear that. David has this, maybe thought, you know, he has this good reputation. But, you know, the people are saying, well, the Lord has forsaken you. Nobody, nobody cares. You know, the Lord's never going to help you. The Lord will never come to your aid. The Lord has forsaken you. David's reputation was gone. The people knew that he had sinned already earlier with Bathsheba. He was an adulterer. He had killed Uriah the Hittite. He was a murderer. David's reputation is gone. His identity is collapsing. And so when when we experience this fear in our lives, when we experience worry, when we experience anxiety, we want to find out and take stock in that moment and say, The reason I'm having this is because I'm glorying in something else. What am I glorying in? That is not the Lord. David sees that the way out of fear is to make the Lord his glory. He says, you, O Lord, are my glory. I I reject all those other things that are my identity. Those cannot be my identity. I don't have them anymore. I have nothing. But you, O Lord, are my glory. He knows that that's the way out of fear. And then he says, uh, the last thing here, he says, I'm scared, but you are the lifter of my head. In scripture, a lifted head signifies confidence and pride. And a lowered head would, would be descriptive of defeat and disgrace. You know, it's, it's something that we're not unfamiliar with. You know, there's, everyone has kind of been around a sport at some point in their life where, you know, when you're losing a game and the coach is like, all right, guys, keep your heads up. Like, you know, let's go out there and, you know, play for our, our pride, our school pride or our, or our nation's pride. Or, you know, when you're, doing, when you're doing poorly, the coach is to come alongside you and say, all right, guys, no, nobody let their heads hang. We're going out there with our heads held high. It's a phrase that's a part of our culture. We know what that means. And so David says, my head is hung low in discouragement. I'm, I'm, I'm facing this fear, anxiety. But he says, but you, O Lord, are the lifter of my head. You are my encouragement. You are the one who raises me from despondency. You are the one who raises me from the, the pit. He's acknowledging that all that matters is that God is proud of him, that God claims him as his own. And then he finishes, 
here, and he says, I cried aloud to the Lord. After he's made these adjustments, I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. He, he's breaking out in this petition, this, this desperate prayer. He says, the Lord hears me and responds. He says, I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. People said that God wouldn't listen to me, but God did listen to me. People said that God had forsaken me, but he responded. I cried aloud to him, and he responded. And when we are in times of difficulty, trial, fear, anxiety, worry, it seems as though we're alone. But Psalm 34 tells us, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, near to those who are in, in difficulty in trial. And David says, the Lord responded to me. As I was in my difficulty, as I was in my brokenheartedness, the Lord responded to me from his holy hill. Now, what does that mean? The holy hill is simply the temple mount in Jerusalem. The temple mount. The temple mount there uh, that could be seen from all the city. And the temple was there. It was where the Jews would gather for worship. It was the place where God dwelt with his people. And the people have said that God has forsaken David, but David cries out and the Lord answers him from that place. Although David was far, you know, was on his way out of Jerusalem, although he wasn't near the temple, the Lord saw him in his difficulty. David knew when he references that the Lord heard him at this, at the temple. The other thing that David knew that the Lord would meet his needs, that he would meet him in his pain, and that ultimately he would have a right standing before God because of what happens at the temple. It wasn't just the place where God dwelt, but the place where sins were offered, or where sacrifice was offered for sin, where sacrifice would pay for sin. And David knew that his sins would be dealt with and that God would keep his word as the lifter of his head, as the shield about him, as the one who would protect him. And this is what he does. In verse 5, he says, I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. Now, isn't it often the case, I'm pretty sure everyone can testify to this, when you are worried, when you are anxious, when you are fearful, you have a hard time sleeping. And sometimes you don't want to sleep because you want to stay up and figure out, all right, how am I going to get out of this? How am I going to deal with this situation? You toss and turn all night long. There's difficulties that you're facing and you're, you're going to you're going to spend all of the time that you should be sleeping worrying about them, trying to figure out what you could do to fix it, what you could do to, to make a change and, and get yourself out of this jam. And David, he, did these, he practiced these three things. He confessed that the Lord was the shield about him, that the Lord was the, the lifter of his head, that the Lord was the one who... Uh, who he cried to in his time of need. The Lord, he, he put himself there on the altar before the Lord. 
He said, Lord, God, you are my glory. I'm not going to look to my own way out of this. You are the one I'm going to look to. And then he trusted that, and then he laid down and slept. And so this anxiety and fear that we experience, it can cause sleeplessness, and we shouldn't stay up worrying. We want to understand that God gives sleep to those who will trust him in the midst of fear, in the midst of difficult circumstances. Psalm 127, 2 Write this down because you will want to remember it. Psalm 127, 2. It is, vain, it is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives to his beloved sleep. It's the gift of God to those who would trust him. God is saying in Psalm 127, it's vain. It's, there's no point for you to get up early and stay up late in this anxious nature and worrying and fear. Go to sleep. Go get some rest. I got it. He demonstrates this through Jesus in Mark 4. There's this point where Jesus is on the boat with the disciples, and there's this great windstorm that, are, that comes up as they're on the lake. And as Jesus was asleep in the stern of the boat on a cushion, they wake him up. The disciples are freaked out. They wake him up, and they say, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? We're going to die. And he wakes up and he just rebukes the sea and says, peace, be still. And he, he uh, there was a great calm and he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? What he's saying there is, is that they should be trusting in God to protect them. They should be trusting in God in the midst of difficulty because of who God is, of his faithfulness to protect his people, to deal with them in the midst of trials and difficulties. Jesus was resting. If, if the leader is panicking, everyone should be panicking. But if the leader's chill, then everything's good. And so Jesus is chill. He's just sleeping. He's like, I'm good. I'm in the back of the boat. We're fine. But yet the disciples, they don't trust him. And so they are freaking out. And so we want to rest in the Lord. We want to trust and have this active trust in the Lord. And so when we deal with times of anxiety, when we deal with times of fear, if you want to demonstrate that you trust Jesus, go to sleep. Just go to sleep. And don't try to worry about it. It's one of the easiest things that you can do to show that he's got it. Just go to sleep. Don't stay up late. Don't try to figure it out. Just go to sleep. He's got it. Easy. And so here's the result. Verse 6. He says, I will not be afraid. He goes to sleep. He sees the Lord's faithfulness. He says, I lay down and slept. I woke up again for the Lord sustained me. Uh, you know, David's counting his blessings there. The Lord gave him sleep and the Lord woke him up again. He protected him. The Lord sustained him. And then he says, I will not be afraid. He's got this renewed confidence. The gospel takes effect in his heart. He knows what God has done for him. He's seen it. He says, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. And then he says, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek, you break the teeth of the wicked. And when he says that there, when he's, when he's crying out this, this stuff to the Lord, what he's doing is he's recalling the words of Numbers 10, verse 35, where Moses uses this phrase, Arise, O Lord. He, 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 Moses uses that 
phrase, as the children of Israel are in the wilderness there, and what Moses was doing was calling on God to go forth to defend Israel and lead them to victory. David is saying the same thing. As you went for Israel in Numbers 10, go for me now. Arise, O Lord, and go before me and protect me. And then he says, you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. David is recalling here these previous times. He's remembering the Lord's faithfulness, the times that God has, in fact, come through for him and defeated the enemies. He's remembering the times where God has given him total defeat over those who oppose him. Where you strike all my enemies on the cheek, you break the teeth of the wicked. He's, he's saying, God, you've done it before. Do it again. Protect me. Go before me. In my time of fear, I want you to show up how you have always shown up for me. And then he says in verse 8, salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. David now turns, we see this kind of point in the psalm where he turns now from being so self-centered and inward-focused to looking at the Lord as the one who ultimately provides salvation. He's not trying to save himself. He's not trying to come up with a plan. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And then he says, your blessing be on your people. The other thing that we see that happened in verse 8 is that <clears throat> David reveals that his heart has changed from being inward focused to outward focused. Initially, he was only concerned about himself. And now his thoughts go back to his people. You know, uh, Scripture tells us that love and fear are opposites. Perfect love casts out all fear. It doesn't say perfect love casts out hate. We say love and hate are opposites. That's not what the Bible says. Perfect love casts out all fear. And so when David's fear is gone and he's finding his greatest joy and satisfaction in God, when he recognizes that God is his glory, that fear is now gone as he's trusting in the Lord as his shield. And now he has that love back that is not inward focused, but outward focused. And he remembers his people. He says, your blessing be on your people. He wasn't only concerned for himself, but he's remembering the Lord protected me. What about all those people that didn't flee and they're all under Absalom now? They're in a whole lot of trouble. He remembers he still loves them and he wants to protect them as their rightful king. And he looks outside of himself. And so David's dealing with his fear leads him back into community. So when we deal with fear, we want to remember these three things. We want to remember that, that God is our, uh, our shield about us. He's our glory. He's the lifter of our head. And then we want to head back into community with other people to process it and deal with the situations at hand. Just as David did. David knew that Absalom wasn't going to love the people well. That's why Absalom wasn't king. He was selfish, and there was a lot of issues you can read about in 2 Samuel. But David's concern began with himself initially. He was, he was self-focused, self-centered. And as we kind of see the context of his heart dealing with this situation, we, we get a little bit more insight as we look back at 2 Samuel 15. It in verse 30, it tells us that as David was going to write this, as David was going to deal with this situation, 
In 2 Samuel 15, verse 30, it tells us that David was weeping. He was barefoot. His head was hung low. Remember, we talked about that. He's the lifter of his head. He was, his head was hung low in shame, and he went to write this psalm. It says in 2 Samuel 15, verse 30, But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot, and with his head covered, and all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up, weeping as they went. And it was told David, Ahithophel, who is David's like right-hand man, his main counselor, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. So David, one of David's closest counselors, one of his, one of his closest disciples there, has betrayed him. He's with his son, Absalom, the enemy. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. So he's asking the Lord there before he writes this psalm for Ahithophel's counsel just to be, you know, to come to nothing. So David goes up to the Mount of Olives. He sits down and he pens Psalm 3, what we just read. We see his heart revealed there on the Mount of Olives as he's there dealing with the fact that he is dealing with this betrayal. He is dealing with this, uh, with his son throwing this coup and trying to take over. He's dealing with this fear on all sides from, from his physical protection that he will be, they're trying to kill him and he's about to lose his identity. And here we see that he did what James prescribed for us. He wept and he prayed, he wept and he sung, he wept and he believed the word of God. James 5.13, let me go back there. If anyone among you suffering, let him pray. Is anyone among you cheerful, let him sing praise. It's difficult in the moment to sing praise, but yet David does that even though he's declaring, you, O Lord, are a shield about me. You're my glory, the lifter of my head. That's a song of praise as well. It's a declaration, it's a prayer, but it's also a song of praise. Now, just a century later, another descendant of David would, would go up the Mount of Olives, Jesus Christ, and he would be there in that garden as David had done in fear of his life. People wanting to kill him, there sweating great drops of blood, not because of the physical pain, but because he knew that his identity was to be ripped from him as he knew sin for the first time at the cross. Jesus experienced this worry, this anxiousness that David experienced, that we all experienced. And God was leading him into the garden to deal with it. And as he went in there in obedience and he said, Lord, not my will, but your will. If there's any other way to let this cup pass from me, if there's any way for us to not go further into danger, let's do that way. But the Lord said to him, I'm a shield about you. I'm the lifter of your head. And three days later, the Lord would raise him from the grave. He would lift him. Jesus went into the garden for the purpose of preparing for the cross. And as he's there in the garden, as he finishes, one of his disciples betray him. One who he thought was closest to him. The guy who was in charge of all the money. He 
is revealed as one who has conspired with the enemy. Jesus faced these same things, and he went through these same steps. But yet, at the end of this, Jesus had perfect trust in the Father, and he went to the cross and experienced the greatest trial, the greatest fear and difficulty that will ever be known for you and for I. Because of his faithfulness to not run away from the shield, because of Jesus' faithfulness to go deeper with the Father into the danger, we have life because of what he has done. And he ultimately is the model as he perfectly obeyed the Father We want to obey. As the Lord takes us into uncomfortable situations, as he puts us in these areas of difficulty, we want to stand strong as Jesus went faithfully to the cross. We want to go into difficulty with him for his glory. And as he shapes our character and changes us and makes us more useful tools in his hands, he will receive the fruit of that and will receive glory. It's a difficult thing to do, but it is something that is required. It was modeled by David, but perfected by Jesus. And now we can succeed in that because of what Jesus has done. And so although we look at Psalm 3 in light of seeing David's struggle, we ultimately push forward to see it projecting to Jesus Christ, who ultimately suffered in the garden for you, for me, and overcame this fear by remembering that, again, the Lord is a shield about. He's the glory and the, the lifter of our head. And when Jesus was on that cross, he, was, he described it, you know, there that we see in, in, uh, in Exodus 13, I believe, where It's the act of the Passover there. Just as the Lord was the shield about David and the Lord is the shield about us, Christ's work on the cross was the shield over us and over sin. He allowed the angel of death to pass over us, the judgment of God to pass over us. And Jesus is ultimately there standing in that place and is our shield. And salvation belongs to him. And so let's respond in worship now. Let's ask the Lord to help us pray this in and to help us process our fear, anxiety, worry, difficulty, trials in life. Let's ask the Lord to deal with us on these things because it's hard, you know, when, when you come to the, to the difficulties of life, you're in the boat and you see the huge waves and the storm and you freak out, but we need to remember Jesus isn't freaking out. He's got it handled. He's got it covered. He is our shield. So let's pray together. Lord, we need your help. We need you to work within us, to change us and transform us into people who are not independent from you, but are completely dependent upon you as, uh, as Lord, we are members of your family. Lord, you alone are our shield. You alone are our glory, the lifter of our head. And so, Lord, as we respond in worship now, we pray that you would cause our, our hearts, Lord, and our minds to to. Uh, react to that. Lord, we don't want to sit here um, in a place where we're unaffected, but Lord, we want to be thankful. We want to worship, Lord, out of the abundance of our hearts, Lord, out of the, the overflow of recognizing of what you've done for us. 
Lord, you are our shield, our stronghold, our refuge. And that when we experience difficulty in life and trials and tough times, Lord, we can run to you. Lord, work within us. Cause us by your Holy Spirit to remember these things and to apply them. Lord, we don't want to just be hearers of the word, but we want to be doers as well. And so, Lord, we want to give you glory as we process these things. Lord, as you remind us of your word, we want to be faithful to love you and serve you here as you've placed us uniquely at this time in history in this specific location. We're yours forever, and so work within us to produce, uh, Lord, righteousness in us. Lord, help us to be useful tools in your hands. We love you. Amen.